Good afternoon, everybody. Or I guess it's still morning if you're in Western Australia, but um, here on the East Coast of Australia, early afternoon. Um, my name's Professor Simon Jackman. I'm the CEO of the United States Studies Centre, and welcome to another United States Studies Centre webinar. Um, the United States Studies Centre, of course, uh, stands on the uh, grounds of the University of Sydney, um, which, in, which in turn um, stands on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people, part of the Aura Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Um, today, um, our agenda uh, is to discuss climate and energy uh, in Australia and, and the United States. And, and this has become, um, I think, once it became clear that Biden might be in with a chance, uh, sort of mid mid uh, last year and certainly since Biden's been elected, was elected. Um, the policy settings in the two countries um, um, become an, a matter of intense interest um, um, to certainly those of us in the United, uh, in Australia with, with, a, with an interest in the United States and with Australia's relationship uh, with the United States. And, and there's an awful lot to talk about there. There's the politics of it. Um, there's the policy and what's possible, the transition to renewables and, and the way that, that Biden back in, in, in the United States, of course, has put um, a transition to renewables front and centre. And indeed, the, the triggering event, if you will, uh, is, is the global climate summit, the, uh, the virtual summit that Biden convened and, of course, Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison and many others participated in um, uh, not so long ago. And we thought that that confluence of events and the, and, the res and the intense interest in sort of, as I said, the policy settings in both countries and indeed how the relationship between the two countries um, might become a vector uh, for uh, generating some policy uh, lift in, in, in certainly in Australia and perhaps uh, in generation of new technologies. Um, uh, given the interest in that, hence uh, uh, today's webinar. And we've got Two really um, amazing guests who uh, are first-time uh, guests uh, here with the United States Studies webinars to help us talk about these issues. Um, first of all, I'm joined from Brisbane today uh, by Professor Peter Ashworth, uh, who is the director of the Andrew Liveris Academy for Innovation and Leadership and uh, chair in uh, Sustainable Energy Futures at the University of Queensland. Um, Professor Ashworth is a globally recognized expert in energy and her research focuses on understanding public attitudes to climate change and energy technologies uh, for climate mitigation. She's had previous roles at CSIRO, uh, group leader of the Division of Earth Science and Resource Engineering. Uh, and her other contributions in the field of sustainable energy include leading the social science re research program of the Global Carbon Capture and Storage Institute, as well as working alongside Australia's chief scientist in the development of Australia's national hydrogen strategy, something I'm sure we'll get into a little bit longer, and as a member of the strategy stakeholder advisory panel. Uh, and indeed, in recognition of her service to science and indeed to the nation, uh, Peter was awarded an Order of Australia medal in, in 2019. Uh, and so Peter joins us from Brisbane and also joining us uh, from Sydney uh, is, is Ryan Heath. 
Uh, Ryan's, uh, again, we're, we're delighted to have these uh, Aussies who have done well in the world sort of characters uh, joining us at a regular clip on these webinars. And Ryan certainly fits into that category. Ryan um, is the author of, a, of Global Translations, um, which is part of the Politico empire, the political stable of publications and newsletters. Um, for those of you that don't know Politico, a, a, a must-read, must-visit destination on the internet. Uh, if you're tracking US politics and policy, though, uh, critically, there's an awful lot of uh, real great policy nitty-gritty in addition to covering sort of who's up, who's down, politics of the day of the week, material on Politico. Um, Ryan, um, uh, uh, has, as I said, from Australia, but has this big, big important role with Politico, a Washington DC based um, operation. Um, Ryan's had other roles at Politico. He's previously authored Politico's UN playbook, their Brussels playbook, their Davos playbook. Uh, he moderated the first presidential debate of the 2019 EU election uh, as part of a five-year stint uh, with Politico uh, on their Europe-facing operation. Uh, he appears regularly on um, global cable news outlets, and he's, as himself, um, authored two books on politics. And before going off to Politico, um, Australia makes the world takes. So Ryan wrote for the Sydney Morning Herald, um, and, and then had a stint with the uh, European Commission in Brussels uh, as a speechwriter and later as the Commission's spokesperson on digital issues. Um, um, Ryan, with his overview of, of, of all these, all these uh, global issues um, and certainly being connected to a, a, a US-focused operation, or a US-based operation perhaps is the best way to put it, like uh, Politico, uh, uh, great partner to have with us um, on today's webinar. So, so good afternoon to, to you, Peter. Hi, good afternoon. <laughs> great to have you with us and, and, and g'day, Ryan. Hi, thanks for joining everyone. I'm really, really thrilled to have, have you both with us uh, for this conversation. Look, where I thought I'm, I'm gonna, I'm the moderator, but I'm also from time to time going to you know, and, and this will be one of those moments, put my own hat on as a, as a researcher, uh, because the, obviously the US Study Center, we're keenly interested in this issue because Australians are keenly interested in this issue and the way that, you know, with the transition from a Trump administration to a Biden administration, the US's settings on climate and indeed, you know, one of the ways the Biden administration wants to reassert US global leadership is very much in, in the domain of climate change. So that sees climate change from the Trump administration to the Biden administration come rushing into center stage uh, for us as a US studies center. And so we, we've done um, a little bit of public opinion research on this in both countries. And I thought if I might, um, I might tee up today's conversation super br briefly as I can just by hitting perhaps on two highlights from some recent research we've done um, that will sort of, I think, help set a bit of the policy and political context. And then we can maybe, you know, come to, to you, Peter and Ryan, um, talking about perhaps, you know, I'd like to frankly to get into, okay, so where to from here, uh, so, sort of, sort of um, uh, topics. Um, 
So, so indulge me just for a moment. Um, a, lot, a lot of talking from me and introducing, just a little bit more talking from me uh, in, in, in just uh, walking you through some of these research findings. And I might even use the wonderful technology of Zoom here to do a, a little screen share, if I can, to show you um, just some, some highlights from, from this polling that we did. This sits on our website. Um, this is our, our USSC website. And here's a short write-up um, that um, Sarah Hamilton, uh, one of our research associates, um, uh, we asked Sarah to summarize uh, in a brief online explainer um, what we saw in our polling uh, on the salience, the importance of climate change as an issue, number one, in, in both countries. Um, and, and real quickly, uh, look, Australians rate the issue as a foreign policy goal. We asked them to assess um, climate change as a foreign importance of climate change as a foreign policy goal. That's overall more popular as a, a foreign policy goal in Australia than in the United States. And part of the reason there uh, why it's, you know, might say only 70%, that's a big number, by the way. <laughs> it's just even bigger in Australia. Um, part of the reason that's a lower number in the United States is, of course, it's wildly popular with Democrats, but wildly unpopular with Republicans. And you average those two, um, those two quite lopsided uh, groups and you end up with overall 68%. Uh, There's far less partisan dissensus on this in Australia. Yes, coalition voters are less enthused about climate change as an issue, but even so, um, they do not lag um, Greens and Labor anywhere near to the extent that um, uh, Trump supporters lag. Um, and lag doesn't quite uh, do justice to the, the distinct lack of enthusiasm for, for climate change as a foreign policy goal or a domestic policy goal for that matter uh, in the United States. Um, again, in the interest of just keeping this short and sweet, and one of the issues that I think has really exercised a lot of Australian commentary on the issue is the extent to which people are trying to imagine, is there a future in Australian-US relations where climate becomes a wedge issue, if you will, in an otherwise rather harmonious set of alliance relationships, but at a government-to-government -government level, uh, would we, could we find ourselves in this and where a very forward-leaning and a very aggressive, very ambitious Biden administration would perhaps call out um, uh, an Australian government, should that Australian government be in the view of, the, of a Biden administration, you know, not doing enough. And, and there were some, you know, some comments by John Kerry um, um, early on, um, uh, back in January, February, um, to the effect that, um, you know, Australia had been problematic at the last uh, 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 climate change conference in Madrid. Um, you know, all of about two sentences in, in about a 30, 40 minute, um, um, uh, presentation uh, by Kerry, but such are Australian sensitivities to this issue at the moment. They've got a ton of media attention uh, back here. So, so we surveyed on this in the US, just assessing the appetite in the United States uh, for tying um, uh, action um, on climate change to US foreign policy, trade policy in particular. And we did that with this question, should the United States reward countries who do more to stop climate change with more, with more favorable trade deals and impose costs on those that do not. And again, you see sort of the extent of the partisan division in the United States I was alluding to, 72% of Biden voters 
um, uh, agree or strongly agree with that proposition. Um, only 17% of, of Trump voters. You've got another group, the unaligned and the not voting. Um, but when you average across the US population, it's roughly about 50-50, 46, 54. Um, so it's not quite a majority position, but the key thing is don't underestimate, and this is our, as a US study center, the message we have for Australian listeners, Democrats are serious about this. Don't, this is not just rhetoric or positioning or Biden placating his left flank, as it were. It is perhaps all of those things. But above all, there is a seriousness um, that one of the ways the US will demonstrate a return to global leadership is by, is by taking seriously what Biden said during the campaign, and that is this aspiration to put climate change considerations at the heart of American foreign policy, national security, uh, as well as the, the bold steps that he's proposing uh, on the domestic policy front. They are all of a piece, um, as it were, and we'll get into how they perhaps interrelate and perhaps the, some of the technical detail, the policy detail of how uh, Biden might, might bring that about. Look, I did just want to share that that's more than enough. Um, there's, there's plenty more there, and I encourage um, you to look at Sarah's fine work on our website. And again, it's not a million miles, I imagine, from some of the work Peter does uh, in, in assessing uh, public opinion on these issues. Um, and, and indeed, Peter may have some, um, some reactions to that. So, that. so that's my opening gambit, as it were, and I'll, I'll revert back now to moderator role. Uh, and in so doing, I'm, I'm just wondering if we could perhaps open up, um, 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 Peter, uh, any reactions uh, to sort of, I know you study public opinion on climate change. I'm just wondering, you know, your sense of the state of play, perhaps in Australia and, um, and the United States, both with the transition from Trump to Biden, uh, but also, you know, given um, uh, the global climate summit, it, I'd, I'd be interested in your sense of sort of what that accomplished um, uh, and perhaps what it may not have accomplished, uh, even, if you will. Sure. Okay, thank you, Simon, and um, thanks for having me here. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, at UQ, we're based on the lands of Jagger and Turrbal people, so I would also like to acknowledge and pay my respects to those. Um, it's really interesting. I think the one thing that I take away from the summit, and, and particularly Biden's sort of strong goals that have come out, I think is, is a whole lot of hope. I think it's something that is really needed. Um, you know, if we looked at, I was looking at a report by the United Nations in February, and if we think about the Paris Agreement and the lead up to where we're going, I think in February only 74 countries had submitted their sort of uh, nationally determined contributions, and I think it added up to something like 0.5% of where we needed to be for 2030. So I think the urgency around this is something that um, having those strong ambitions is really helpful in moving that forward. Um, when it comes to Australia, I guess what's interesting, and I always look back at that sort of where we had, you know, six prime ministers in almost as many years, and I think a lot of that was a climate-related underpinnings. Um, and I think it was actually a bit of a surprise, I suppose, when, you know, when our Prime Minister got, got actually voted back in. And I think, you know, this idea of the quiet Australians, and I think because we all 
thought it would be a climate issue, but it turned out not actually being that. And um, it was really interesting to unpick then some of the, our survey work, which is very similar. But I think what we found there is definitely there's an ideology, you know, the, the sort of conservative voters will be much stronger in support of, of the fossil fuel side of things. Green are very much obviously environment and renewable energies, but when we did some regressions, it was actually interesting because within the Labor voters, there was an element of swinging, swinging voters around some of these issues. Now, they still come out stronger towards the sort of environmental side of things when compared. But I think it's really interesting to start to think about what that means in Australia when we compare it to US. That's something I just wanted to think mm -hmm. about. And then another thing that we're just touching on is one of the things that makes me hopeful as well is being the response to COVID. We didn't, you know, if you think about the amount of spending that's gone on by governments on this issue, whereas, you know, there's a whole thing, we can't afford the transition to climate and so forth, even though we know it's going to bring about jobs and actually it's an investment. We saw it happen and we saw governments take on board um, feedback from scientists and inform their policies, not all of them. But I think what that does to me, it also gives hope that the role of the IPCC and climate scientists, which pretty much, as your results show in mine for many years, the majority of Australians are concerned about, and I'll talk from my sort of Australian side of things at this stage. And so I think there is an opportunity um, that, that sort of is actually sort of sitting there. The other thing that I liked about Biden's infrastructure approach is that it's a whole of system approach. I mean, I work a lot in the energy technology, but we can't forget the broader sector. And I think that that's one of the issues that we somehow need to take the politics and try and get this bipartisan approach to these really important issues, as we saw happen with the COVID, COVID issue within Australia. And I think that that really makes a difference because in my mind, when I see, I think businesses are demanding this, they're demanding a sort of bipartisan approach that can move things forward. We're seeing around the world, large investment multinationals, ESG is playing a huge role because they see an opportunity for green jobs moving forward. And I think that that's something that we need to be really mindful is how do we keep the politics? And obviously we'll hear a bit more from you, Ryan, you know, it's possibly harder in some ways in the US when we saw what happened in the election. But I think I might just sort of leave it there for now if that sort of starts the conversation. Oh, no, terrific. Yeah. There's a ton there, and I do want to come back to uh, a couple of... I, I made a few notes, uh, Peter, definitely pick up um, on some of the things you talked about. Um, uh, Ryan, um, I guess sort of some opening thoughts from you. Um, I guess perhaps, again, um, you know, the invitation, perhaps, you know, how things look from your perspective you know, if, if you might, um, keep, keep, keep an Australian hat on perhaps as you do this, thinking about, thinking about Biden, Biden to Trump, but also here we are now a couple of weeks yep. after the climate summit, um, your, your sense of where things are and where they might be tracking. Yep. Um, just one follow-up point before all of that on, on the numbers front. I sure. think it's important to remember in the US that effectively on a lot of issues and climates, one of them, uh, you, national polling only goes so far. You know, the elections are really a series of state-based elections. And what matters is what the effectively the swing states are thinking about this. And in particular, Biden uh, is laser focused 
on talking about the impact on middle-class families and jobs about any of his policies, like all the way through foreign policy, no matter how tangential, you'll get that message. And in particular, climate, he framed it at the summit and at his congressional address in terms of jobs, jobs, jobs. And so what's really important is to sort of get a sense of where um, either that sort of post-industrial or former Rust Belt sort of America is at and where some of those newer swing states are at. And I think that does translate a little bit into Australia. The, the sort of policy idea or analogy that came to mind there was the, the kind of time lag that existed in achieving marriage equality in Australia. You know, there was a majority there for quite a long time before the referendum ever happened. It wasn't a question that a majority of people supported it happening, but it was those 15 or 16 seats that decide the elections where it just wasn't a really popular or uh, sort of an issue that motivated a lot of people. And that's what kept both parties from putting it forward. And I think there's a little bit that sometimes as well um, in climate in, in, in both countries. Uh, to step back now and do a bit more of the overall context, I think it would be no surprise to anyone listening that it's an extremely challenging uh, context for Joe Biden at the moment. You've got a very fragile democracy and you've got a country that's been socially uh, decimated and polarized by COVID. So clearly most other world leaders understand that he has a lot on his plate and they have been trying not to add to that burden. At the same time, Joe Biden's invited these very tough discussions by moving pretty quickly on climate. And so I think that he has made significant strides in sort of making clear that the US is renewing its commitment uh, to global climate action. But the reality is that the US has burnt a lot of bridges over the past 20 years when it comes to all of this. And uh, along with a couple of my colleagues, I think we've, we've directly spoken to about 26 climate ministers now around the world. And our very clear assessment from those conversations is they want to see Congress pass a binding 2030 emissions target. You know, they, they appreciate the vision that John Kerry and Biden have laid out. It's clear that they'll get a significant way towards that vision, even if Congress doesn't mandate um, this target. But they've seen the US flip-flop before, um, and they're, they're really going to believe it when Congress gets on board. And that is going to be a huge challenge for Biden because he's not going to be able to do that through uh, the budgeting process, which you only need 50 plus one to, to succeed in in the Senate. He needs 60. And I don't see where the 60 votes are coming from. So I think there's going to be a, a lack of credibility, uh, not total, but a significant lack of credibility to what has been laid out so far if Congress can't get on board with some of this, and in particular because they're not proposing a carbon price. So you know, the, the funding will get them sort of a certain amount of the way. And we've all heard about the infrastructure plan now. That will be one of the, the funding focal points. Uh, you're obviously in a situation where uh, about 80% of the American economy informally or very publicly stayed in the Paris commitment, even when Trump uh, left the Paris Agreement. So there's a very deep corporate commitment. There's a lot of things that have been sunk in a very foundations that have been sunk very deep to get this thing moving. Um, but you're still going to have skeptical governments. And I'd say Scott Morrison is amongst um, those governments. Uh, they're going to really struggle to move and be convinced to sacrifice some of their own political capital to align with Biden if Congress can't get on board. Um, for the summit itself, you know, I think it was fairly successful. You know, you might even say Vladimir Putin was being constructive um, on the surface at the summit. We got some new commitments out of several major countries, but the truth is China didn't come with anything new. Uh, Brazil didn't come with anything new. And, and if I'm really harsh and brutal here, I think 
you know, it was noted that Scott Morrison made this sort of um, R&D technology commitment, but it's kind of, it's a drop in the ocean. It's not a thing anyone in Washington remembers a week or two weeks after the discussion. What they really want to see uh, is some proper, tougher targets. And I do think that John Kerry at some point in the year is going to be willing to call out Australia on that point. They're not going to hold back. It's not in their interest to fire all those shots right now, um, but they're very clear what they want. And it's very clear Scott Morrison hasn't joined them yet in that process. Um, thank you both. Th those were a great, oh, there's so much. I mean, we're going to fill the rest of our time <laughs> just dealing with, with the, your comments. Um, um, oh, where to start? Look, um, Peter, um, Ryan makes a really great point. And, and, and right now, and this is true about both Australia and the US at the moment, there is no political, meaningful, plausible political path forward to a carbon price. Um, um, and hence in Australia, we've developed this phrase, technology, not taxes. Um, here at the US Study Center, the, the few of us that sort of track this issue perhaps more carefully than, than others, you know, that's our assessment of kind of where the US is. They're not, they wouldn't use that form of words, but I'm seeing a lot of carrots, if you will. I'm not seeing a lot of sticks in any proposal. And I, I, I got to share Ryan's assessment. Legislating a target, in the, uh, let alone a mechanism for getting to it, but I, I don't even think you could get a sense of the US Congress that, uh, that, that, uh, that the target itself is desired. What there may be support for is like buckets of money to do things like the 175 billion on the EV network and, and, and things like that. I think it, you'll get votes for those things uh, that, that perhaps will enable and might help smooth a, a, a glide slope to some of the ambitious 2030 targets. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, your sense of it, Peter, um, um, you know, that, you know, in the, in the, that said, in the, in the literally 24, 36 hours before the climate summit, you had unnamed representatives of the US State Department saying, now, 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 Australia, technology, not taxes. That's not going to be good enough. That's not going to get it done for you guys. Uh, you guys need to be more ambitious than that. And just listening to Ryan and reminded, well, if Kerry's going to call us out again, this is the, on what exactly? Because I don't think the US is going to be able to... Um, talk much uh, about targets. I think they remain aspirations. I think the point of differentiation, the differentiation between the two countries is going to be the magnitude of the investments in the R&D that just, it's going to rain carrots in the US for, for civil society, for universities, for state and local governments, uh, for corporations perhaps to do things uh, all but a, a mandated target or, or, or a carbon price. I'm, I'm just wondering your sense of the policy trajectories you see both countries on at this point at least, and would you, you know, your characterization of it, I've, I've offered mine, I'd, I'd be interested in your, your sense, Peter. Look, you probably, I mean, I probably agree with both of you when, when you think about actually that sort of passing it through Congress, yes, and I've got a very good friend in Washington who I talk to a lot around these issues. We actually start out in the carbon capture and storage stage. So it is, it's an interesting thing to, to ponder, I suppose, around that. 
how will it change? I mean, I, I sort of from, and Ryan, you can probably talk much better to this to the US, but from an Australian perspective, the fact that we've actually seen the words net zero emerge right. to me is an incredible shift from what was a little while ago. And, um, you know, thinking about things like, um, you know, um, Dali Stegall's Climate Act Now bill, when you look at that, there's some really sensible steps that clearly map out, which actually isn't too far from some of the discussions around, you know, technology has a role and so forth. So I think to me, and I guess I am always forever the optimist, I'll say that, and I think that that's probably important. So for me, I think that's an important part. When it comes to business, I think even here, multinationals or Australian business are looking for certainty around that. And that actually will have an impact in driving things in a positive way to say, actually, we need a plan and we need, you know, how we're going to get there. So I think there's sort of some pressures coming from that way. And I think also the investment community is can play a big role here as to what's funded, what's not, the, the both at the international and the sort of national level. I think there's some things there. And that's also not to underestimate the bottom up as well. I think, you know, what's happening and what we're seeing at the state levels as well. I mean, we really do need a, a national coordinated approach, but there are pressures coming from other sides that I think actually help. And then also flipping it to say the opportunities that, that can come from this transition, I think is, is all important in trying to get to that. That's just my sort of initial thoughts. I don't know if that sort of answers your question as much as you want it. No, but. no, no, that's fine. Yeah. Um, um, I, I guess, uh, Ryan, I want to, um, well, actually, Peter, let me, let me, um, let me pick up a, a, a really key point you did make about, about the Biden proposal, though, was the way um, there's a systems sort of approach being brought to the infrastructure bill. Ryan, I don't know your read of the Biden infrastructure proposal, but um, again, I file that under the money going out the door. That's easier for Congress to vote for and becomes a great vehicle mm -hmm. for, for rolling out. Again, I think for me, Exhibit A is the proposed 175 billion on EVs. When you're saying I'm not proposing at least, I'm not proposing, you don't have to use an EV. Um, um, you don't have to build EV charging stations uh, and networks. Um, I'm not gonna, we're not gonna tax gasoline uh, any higher, but look at this, look at this huge amount of money uh, that's available. Um, uh, I'm wondering if, you know, do you have a view of, you know, do you know any more of the detail about what might be there? You know, I keep, I, I seize on that particular item. Yep. How is, what else is Biden proposing to try and get to realize that target? Um, and, and can he get there with, with, again, technology, not taxes? At some point, can you get to that aspiration he's laid out for 2030? Uh, a 50 percent reduction of 05 uh, uh, emissions levels. Can you get there with technology and not taxes? Yeah. I mean, I think it's going to be very difficult to get there with technology and taxes um, at this point. <laughs> so I think it certainly moves you some of the way. It's definitely the easiest block to move forward. And I suspect that a lot of this is going to get wrapped up into a, a strategic competition with China narrative. Right. 
And that's where the EV stuff comes in. Um, I think both the EU and the US are pretty clear headed these days that they have let China get far too far ahead in battery production in general. And that's obviously a critical component with EV. Uh, in Australia and the US, you've got the added issue of sort of the distance factor and that being something that scares people away from, from buying electric vehicles. Um, if you just don't have a really great charging network, I mean, how are you gonna convince people outside of dense cities to, to, to buy them? Um, so I think that it, it sort of points towards um, big national visionary projects, if you can make it happen like the highways network happened after World War II. And I think you can have a better chance of getting the money if you make it clear that this is about beating China um, and climate becomes the kind of the bonus side effect rather than the purpose of some of the funding. And then I think sort of to burrow deeper into the, the infrastructure plan in general, I think the way it's been constructed is that it has a kind of outer layer wish list of things that, uh, you know, you might not even say are truly infrastructure. infrastructure. It depends on your perspective. So, you know, are care, whether it's child or elder care services, infrastructure? Well, in an aging society, you might well argue that it does count as infrastructure. But a lot of people still have the idea of bridges or, you know, at the outside, an EV network or a broadband pipe as as infrastructure. And so I think the thing has been designed to lose some of these layers of funding and that around about 60 to 70% of it um, would get through to the finish line. And I think the EV stuff is the core climate thing within that basically. Um, and, and, and yes, I think that the other thing that I would say is a distinguishing factor in the US and Australia is I think that the, the corporate commitment and the, at least the corporate public discussion around these issues um, and between the, the big companies and their customers is more advanced than from what I can tell in Australia. And so I think that, you know, it's, it's almost like regardless of what the government does, these companies are going to be doing X or Y. And then, again, it only gets you so far, but when you start adding it all up, it gets you close to where you want to be in 2030, I would say. Yeah, that's a, it's a really key point, Ryan. And I think for our Australian-based listeners, I was acutely aware of that um, and remained acutely aware of that in you know, my time in the US, particularly where I was in Northern California, um, DC was almost irrelevant yep. to what was happening on the ground, either coming out of the research labs at Stanford or just- <laughs> Yeah, and their emissions regulation for cars, from like getting California, them on the road by right. 2035, for example. Right. Already and, as Cal and California almost became the national de facto regulator yeah. You've got if you've got a tool up, and you know for the Cal and the feds aren't able to challenge the California regulations in court. If they if they stand up, then the industry just goes, well, there's the de facto standard. And moreover, the customers and you're right, it was almost, it was sort of what was happening in the marketplace was was almost dragging sort of government um, along. And the world's richest conservative in Elon Musk, he, he has built his fortune and staked his future on this working. Yeah. So there are, there are elements outside of sort of the democratic establishment that want yeah. this to happen. And that, that helps anchor all of these goals as well. Um, let me bring Peter back in in a moment, but I, I just will also, again, from our perspective here as a, as a team at the US Study Center, I think we, we too, I, did, I, I think you raise a really key point. Um, when Biden talks about the, the competition for the 21st century, I think the, the, the who is first to a renewable future 
is, is a big piece of what he's got in mind. And, and the EV piece in particular, uh, why the US is going hell for leather or talking about going hell for leather on that is I think very much a catch up story. Um, but this is a key uh, pathway forward. Um, and, and we let China get way too out in front on what is going to be one of the ubiquitous technologies of uh, the next couple of decades at least. Um, Peter, um, I'm wondering if we could, if you don't mind, if I could ask you to, you know, put your technologist hat on and you've worked on the hydrogen group and, 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 but what you see in the technology stack or the technology pipeline that's encouraging in terms of getting us, uh, Australia or, or, or the US in particular, as you look at that very ambitious target that Biden is sketching for, um, for the US and, and thinking about, you know, perhaps not comparable, but, but whatever an Australian a, a target or aspiration might be, uh, what's, what's in the technology stack um, or pipeline that, that you think might be most significant or that we're not perhaps, if you're on this call, you're probably, you might be well-versed with the issues, but, but perhaps the general public might not be not be so uh, aware of or conscious of? It's a good question. And I, I don't count myself as a technology buff because I you know, come from a social science background, but having worked alongside all of these super smart people at CSIRO and, and even with the integration, my, my interest is when you integrate technology in society and how people respond to that. So my overarching view, and I do feel very fortunate having to be having been on the hydrogen strategy with mm -hmm. someone like Alan Finkel as a chief scientist, because mm -hmm. I think in my mind, he brings a measured approach to this idea that we've got to try and, um, what's the word, not pick winners, but also we know there are clear winners emerging from the point of view. If we look at the cost of renewables and how that's come down, over time with batteries, as long as we can, you know, back it up with sort of that um, firming, firming technology, that's mm -hmm. starting to be a clear winner, both, um, you know, around the world, because of mm -hmm. course it competes on price. Um, hydrogen is a very interesting one, and we can talk some more about that later, but I think, you know, the whole world is, is pinning a lot of hope on hydrogen. Now it's been around before, but what's different, I think, is the urgency around decarbonisation, which is why it's becoming much more significant and if you think you know mission innovation one of those pillars has really focused um just looking around the world you know germany is putting huge amounts of money in capacity building i think they had a the bmbf put out five million euros to encourage german institutions to build teams of eight or nine people to come to germany for three years to build their knowledge in hydrogen so that's a pretty clear signal that they see it as being important I think the one thing, and carbon capture and storage is a really interesting one, having worked in that for a long time. You know, I got involved in that years ago when CSIRO was just setting up their energy flagship. And it was like, well, should we invest in CCS or not? And so I did some focus groups with a range of people. And basically at that stage, you know, the feeling was, well, if we're exporting coal, we have a, we have a need to clean it up. Um, and carbon capture and storage is one of those. Now it's waxed and waned, and if you're advocates for it, then they would have you know a strong position. But it is still quite expensive um, when you look at the relative in the absence of you know carbon prices. Although the Q45 in the US sort of changes some of that when they own the pore space underneath. But for me, it's a really interesting technology to 
think about, and I don't know if it will be there in the end, but if we look at the 1.5 degrees and what was said there, the BECs and the need to actually go for negative emissions and things or whichever, it's still an interesting technology to have on the side, I think. But um, that's my sort of overview of some of where these are. But batteries, of course, is really important. This, you know, how do we move those two together? I don't know if that gives you enough detail, but I do think recently... Um, there was a quarterly essay from Alan Finkel that was came out and I right. really thought every Australian should read that because it steps you through very easily to understand why we have to phase out 23 gigawatts of coal. What is 23 gigawatts look like? What is the right. replacement of that? And if we look at the Princeton study that was done around net zero America, it's very interesting when you get into the nitty gritty of how much wind and solar and transmission lines that's going to need to get to the zero and as a social scientist, no one's going to want those transmission lines. You know, and, and how do we compete the land use issues and all the rest? Yep. It's not so black and white. And that's why I think we need to keep having the conversations and it will be different in different countries. And so we're talking Australia, US, but I'm also very mindful of developing countries and what's our role to bring them out of poverty and to ensure that, you know, they're the ones most likely to be impacted by climate change, you know, the severe weather events. So there's a lot of energy justice issues in our technology choices as well. And so what's the role of us as developed countries to do that? And I think this is where Australia and US, there's opportunities for sharing and working together in the R&D space in fast tracking some of those. Sorry, long answer. <laughs> no, 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 that's terrific. Um, look, I, I, again, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, a, I'm a reasonably competent um, um, statistician, <laughs> I can read technical work, but I'm not a I'm not a I'm not a climate scientist, nor a nor a material science person, um, or, or, or or chemist. Um, um, but I think you know, but it raises a great question. Um, I think we've got to find a way to because the choices we're making as societies are huge, and and it's so easy for the politics of this uh, to fire up and and and. And for, I think it was Ryan that made the point earlier, small regionally concentrated uh, voices on these issues whom have a lot at stake uh, to, uh, to sort of blow away potentially, you know, ideas that may be for the societal, even global good, um, where the issue is perhaps felt with a slightly less level of intensity. That's a common sort of feature of political issues. A small number of people care very, 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 very deeply about it and essentially end up with veto rights. Um, yes. um, and so I think that's why um, figuring out, you know, what are the uh, upsides potentially from, from these different technologies um, that are, that are on the horizon. When we talk about green jobs, okay, how realistic are they? And in each of the, I, I just point to the three areas you just talked about, um, Peter, um, hydrogen, uh, CCS, um, and I guess the other one might be, might, might be battery uh, technology uh, too, but, but also then just building this out, you know, what that looks like. Yeah. Got, I think you've got to put that in people's heads. Um, otherwise, I think we're not, we're not being honest um, with, with the people who we're asking to take on potentially big costs. Yeah. Once we build up the solar resources, they'll last for 25 years and then they're going to have to be replaced. There's a sort of ongoing upgrades and things that will happen, the recycling. There's all sorts of things within that that I think is opportunities for our countries to think about. Sorry, right. 
I, I think um, there's some big opportunity Ryan, go ahead. Yeah. on the sort of how to do the bipartisan thing. So I think everyone here listening will have heard that Joe Biden wants to be bipartisan and that a lot of Republicans in Congress are skeptical about that. But I, I do think he's more successful delivering that message to independent voters and, you know, your regular Republican voters at home. So my in-laws are registered Republicans who couldn't bear Trump by the end of it. But, you know, their instinct is to be a bit conservative if there's a palatable way to do that. And I think Biden does appeal very successfully to people like that. And where some of that is bubbling up in practical terms is uh, we did some analysis a couple of months ago with the National Association of Counties and a couple of other think tanks. And basically, we're able to pinpoint that around about 10 of the 12 sort of counties, and the counties can be quite big when we're talking about regional areas, um, the ones that stand to benefit most from solar and wind expansion uh, in the US are red counties. Uh, and they're actually, a lot of those places are seeing the light and they can't quite tally that up sort of ideologically. Um, their representatives aren't sort of full-throated backers of those systems yet, um, but it, it's starting to happen. And so that's the positive side. The big hurdle that I think the Democrats are going to, to face as we get into more of these possibilities of in, investing in this infrastructure plan is that, uh, yes, there are real jobs building out these sort of facilities and this infrastructure, but on average, they actually pay about $12 an hour less than the fossil fuel sector jobs that they would notionally replace. So you've got the challenge that, you know, very few coal miners are just suddenly going to become solar panel installers. It's not a one-for-one one replacement like that. And then overall, uh, the new jobs pay less than the fossil fuel jobs. And that, that I think, is going to be a big hurdle to you know, convince that extra 10% of people that you need to say that you've got a proper bipartisan consensus on this. So it's interesting when you, when you think about that. We um, had Andreas Loschel from University of Munster come out and talked about the, the German transition and... One of the things that I took away from when he talked about that early was how they celebrated the coal communities as they moved the trend. And obviously they had a big plan in place and so forth. And I think that's one of the things that struck me in our regional communities, because it is important, you know, they've carried the load, they've, they've really helped us develop. And so how do we help them plus companies who, you know, the, the oil and gas companies, a lot of those workers want to be involved in the renewables. How do we transition that? And it may not be like for like in energy jobs, but there may be other sorts of things that we can think. But again, that requires planning. It requires, you know, true understanding of the costs and those sorts of things. But um, I think that's an important part of the messaging that we need to think about um, here in Australia right now, because, you know, we still have a large element of, fossil energy coming into our supply. So how do we help that transition in a positive way? Um, the thought. Um, we're about 12 minutes from uh, our hour being over. So I thought at this point, um, we've had some questions. It goes very fast, doesn't it? Um, 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 I thought we might um, bring in um, some questions that have come up. Um, and, and Ryan, with your... European background at, at Politico um, in particular, and, and at the EU, um, European Commission rather. Um, um, this is a great question from Peter Draper. Um, and, it, and it picks up on that earlier thing about, um, you know, punishing, using trade and trade barriers or all those levers in the trade space to 
incentivize or impose costs on countries um, with respect to their carbon policy. So Peter asks, could the EU's proposed carbon border adjustment mechanism play a role in shifting the US and or Australia towards adopting something akin to a carbon tax? And I guess I'd follow up, uh, Ryan, with um, you, can you ever see the US not imposing costs on itself, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but imposing costs on other countries through border-adjusted uh, carbon-based uh, taxes? Yeah, uh, but that's, it's a super good question. So I think like at the very 30,000 foot level, I think the EU is great at exporting regulation. And a, a recent <laughs> example of that is its data protection regime. And what it does is either effectively push other countries to adopt that same regime or a like regime. Um, so I can see that they're trying the same tactic again uh, with carbon. And what it puts Australia and the US in the position of thinking is, well, why would we let Europe take this tax money via a carbon uh, uh, border adjustment tax rather than spending it on our own schools and our own hospitals and our own green transition. If Australians are going to end up paying this money anyway for that trade system to work, why don't Australians and Americans pay it to themselves? It's, it is a little bit crazy when you think about it in those terms. Um, I couldn't put a number on whether it's likely to cause Australia and the US to revise the whole carbon price debates. Um, but it certainly puts them in a, in, a, in a tight spot. And we've seen via things like the global digital tax debate that, you know, eventually America might come around to these sorts of things after for a decade really saying this is impossible. This is an attack on American companies. You know, if, you know, the EU market is really too big to ignore. Um, I think the EU will have more success with Australia, though, A, because Australia is smaller and B, because um, the EU and Australia are negotiating a free trade deal right now. And, and you can essentially bet your bottom dollar that the trade deal won't be finalised until this issue is sorted out. Um, and that is going to force a reckoning in Australia. And, and oh. I think on the back of China sanctions, you know, we heard a little bit from that. So I think there's a real lived experience that shows what can happen in different ways, I suppose. Sorry. Also, that Australia can live through tariffs, which is not great for the environment in this example. Um, um, let, let's see if we can get a few more questions in. Um, we've got a few questions. I was thinking about this myself. So I'm seeing a question from Lenka Kola mm -hmm. and uh, Nobuyashu Abe. Um, uh, I'm just looking anywhere else who's hit on this question. That's the question of nuclear energy in the mix. Now, one of the things that Australians often forget about the United States and, and about European countries for that matter too, is, is yes, there's perhaps less greenhouse gas emissions per gigawatt of electricity generated in those countries uh, than Australia. Um, uh, but often that's because, you know, in the US there's a, a significant, you know, I forget what the number is, it's in the 20% or something of US power might be might be uh, nuclear, and then there's another gas is doing way more in the U.S. Uh, electrical grid uh, than uh, than in Australia. Um, the question is, you know, the U.S. is uh, where is the U.S. perhaps going with its use of nuclear energy um, uh, going going forward? And again, might you know, there's every now and then you hear talk about this in the Australian space, and it's actually gotten a bit more political oxygen over the last uh, couple of years. But um, any appetite or enthusiasm for 
uh, nuclear energy being in the sort of the non-fossil fuel energy mix of the, of the near future. Um, I can jump Peter, in a little sure. bit on that, yeah. yeah, for sure. I guess it, it is very interesting. And um, I had the fortune to work with Eric McFarlane when he was here from UCSB as the Dow Chemical. He's a Harvard-trained MD and a nuclear physicist. So if anyone can talk about the safety of nuclear, he is it. And I think one of the things, obviously the US needs what they've got in nuclear if they're even going to have a chance of sort of keeping their emissions low. But longer term, it is interesting. Here in Australia, it does come up. Um, we know, you know, from I just did some analysis having seen that question that males tend to be more supportive than females, which we know from all the risk communication literature, that's not really a surprise. Mm -hmm. um, and, but I think the other thing is that here for Australia, we, we have the ANSTO, we have nuclear medicine and we have the R&D, but to actually sort of my understanding from colleagues to actually introduce nuclear would be a 10 to 20 policy thing. The costs really don't necessarily stack up from my understanding. There's a group of educated males that would say it does, but my understanding probably not. Um, and then the social license issues, I think, is still something that should not be underestimated from a technology perspective. I co-chaired the National Radioactive Waste, and, you know, there's a real reason as to why we need to store the low to medium waste and that in itself divided communities. The no nuclear work that when they looked at reprocessing in South Australia, similarly, having done a huge engagement with citizens, they said no, they didn't want it. So it's, it's a challenge, but when you throw in the light from an environmental and low CO2, then it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I think Brian, we're in the thoughts on that. Yeah. So I think for countries that already have significant nuclear power, it's a different equation. Um, they're really in the space of extending the lifespan of a lot of those facilities. And there are next generation nuclear facilities, but it really is the cost benefit question here. And I was involved in a process when I still worked at the EU um, where we were worried about the UK leaving and there was a very contentious debate about approving state aid, basically allowing government subsidies um, for uh, one of the Hinkley nuclear reactors. And that really only went through out of political fears that it might be a reason to promote Brexit, basically. There was no economic reason to justify the subsidies there. It was clearly an economically crazy proposition. And I think that's what a lot of countries would find themselves in. Um, but I have to ethically confess to raising the political cost of this in Australia. Uh, back in 2007, I was working for Peter Garrett um, in the ah. election campaign. And John Howard had raised the issue and was talking um, about introducing nuclear energy. And I came up with the idea of um, getting him to agree to local referendums for any possible sites where this would happen. And Howard folded in question time within about two minutes. Um, and so that definitely killed off the discussion for a while. And I, I don't think it'll be forgotten if it's raised again. And, and that, will, that is the sort of thing that will end up being a political block in Australia, I think. Yeah. Yeah, oh, well done, Ryan. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know you worked for, for Peter Garrett. That's great. Um, um, worth a separate webinar, probably, right? Right. right, right yeah. We did two national surveys uh, around that time, a year apart. And the first one, it was probably three to one opposed. And in that time, it actually moved to two to one with a whole lot of people going into uncertain, which showed... To me, it was like, well, there's a discussion going on. I don't know much about this. So it was quite interesting, um, you know, to think about the implications of what, what goes on and how that influences 
I always say our social research, you know, something can happen overnight and it changes tomorrow. Yeah. Um, look, um, we've got, only got a couple of minutes to go. Um, I'm just thinking, coming back to a US-Australia in the bilateral, look, I know, look, the politics of this and um, uh, I, I know our team, our diplomatic team in, in, in Washington, very much looking to get on the front foot of this issue. Uh, once that Biden, the Biden team were clearly going to form a government. Um, and, and talking up um, avenues for cooperation, particularly in uh, uh, emerging renewable technologies, um, uh, the geostrategic frame never too far away from those conversations, by the way. Um, but I, if, if I could, I'm wondering, is there something you're looking at or you're aware of or you think we ought to be aware of that Australia and the US can do together in this broader domain, be it in the region, I know we've already alluded to that, um, but perhaps in that, uh, those R&D plays, what are natural complementarities there perhaps to exploit? I'm just wondering if we could close with some, some observations or some thoughts about what you see as, as perhaps optimistic or green shoots there in terms of things that the two countries, despite actually being on different sides of politics, at least notionally, um, where, where there are points of agreement and, and potential ways to move forward um, in, in the two countries, between the two countries. Yeah. Um, maybe I would say low probability, but high payoff, if Australia was willing to do it, is uh, some examination of an exit from coal. And I say that because Michael Bloomberg's invested about a billion dollars in his Beyond Coal and Beyond Carbon campaigns. Uh, and I, he is not happy with the situation in Australia and he's furious with the situation in China. And obviously we're linked to that through our exports. Uh, and I think if even countries like Poland, you know, it's a 30 year plan, but even they're getting a plan to exit coal. Um, and it's maybe not as fancy as the German one, uh, but I think Australia needs to be thinking about that. And if it can demonstrate some movement on that front, even if it's very long-term, but if it can show a way forward for China, if it can show that America's turned somebody's mind, um, I, I think that is the sort of thing where it won't take too much for Australia to get a cuddle from America, but so it's got to do something. And, and I think that would be a pretty good way of doing it. Interesting. Peter? Yeah, look, I, I guess my, I'm heartened by collaborations previously working with people in the US on all of these different fronts of technologies. I suppose it very was a, a global sharing. So I think wherever there's opportunities for that, um, it, it's interesting. Arizona State Uni, when I was there recently, they were talking about what could they do with the Indigenous um, group there who, who now they've sort of moved away from coal and got a lot of solar. What are the things there? So I think there's some interesting stories around that sort of regionality in different states, what we can think about as well. And I guess the one thing we didn't talk about here is developing countries and what's our role as developed nations to try to come up with solutions that can be more bully. That is another whole conversation, but I think a really important one from a global perspective, particularly from manufacturing, where they carry the burden of a lot of the stuff that we enjoy the privilege of. So I don't know, I think there's something there that needs to be done even from a global perspective. Yeah, and, and again, the geostrategic frame comes comes rushing right back in there, Peter. Um, talking and the about, Quad Alliance, using the Quad right. Alliance to deliver that climate outcome in the Pacific could be a very, very handy. Uh, agreed, agreed. Um, but again, it's a, it's a 
uh, carrots raining down uh, rather than, than sticks on that one, I, I think. Um, but, but, but also, uh, I think it also turns on um, getting, getting, you know, your own story straight domestically, I think, before you're in a position to um, um, be, doing, be doing, you know, have a, a pretty mature tech, set of technologies to take into the field. Um, as part of your, your international presence. And, and, um, boy, I think we need to do at least another one of these. Um, there's, there's, the issue isn't going away, that's for sure, about, about climate change. But, it's a, but the pace at which the technologies are evolving, um, the intersection with the geostrategic stuff is huge. If you talk to Australian political leadership, you know, it's really... Um, you know, Australia's contribution to the global climate story comes so much through what it is we're sending to North Asia to be burned. Um, and do we send something else other than coal or even LNG going forward? And so what are the technologies that accelerate perhaps um, the change in our export mix, uh, which is the change in sort of the energy that's being consumed uh, in in the, in big North Asian uh, economies. Um, that that's I think a, a, a another conversation too. Um, so we're definitely going to have to do this again. It's two we're two minutes past our scheduled uh, end time. Um, so I will simply close by thanking uh, Peter and Ryan. This is the first time um, I've spent any time with with either Peter or Ryan. It was. A, a delight and, and getting this variety of perspectives and, and tapping into both the deep policy and knowledge and, and deep uh, political knowledge. That's my sweet spot. I can hang out there all day, but we've only got an hour this afternoon. Um, um, thank you, Peter. Thank you, Ryan. And thanks, thanks to everybody who joined us this afternoon. Um, see you on, a, on another USSC webinar uh, in the not too distant future.